that God is in charge. And not only is He in charge, but He has our very best in mind. And so that is why we can sing those kind of words. That no matter what is coming down the pike of your life, that you can lean on God and know that He loves you. And He has your future secure. Well, let's see. We're 50 games in. 50 games in. Whose bracket is 100% perfect so far? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Wow, WVU, what happened? What happened, Mountaineer fans? I don't know what's going on. But it was a bad day for Mountaineer fans yesterday. But it's interesting to watch sporting events. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then I don't know where you live. But um, you need to get out there a little bit. Because right now we're in the middle of the NCAA basketball men's tournament. And uh, many of us fill out brackets and pick of, I guess it's 66 or 68 teams who we think will be the championship team here crowned in a couple weeks. And, and on Thursday and Friday, we had 32 games. Yesterday, there were 16 games. And then today, we have a few more. And so, it's just the way it works. It's the way it works right now as we, as we think about basketball and sporting events. But one of the things that strikes me is almost every event in life, be it a sporting team, be it your work environment, your home, be it a church, there is value, there is great value attached to a leader. To a leader. We all recognize that we need led. We need led. Every single one of us. And today what we're going to do is we're starting to do a small series through a very important chapter in your Bible. It's Isaiah chapter 53. It's in the middle of your Bible, roughly. And if you want to start trying to find it, that's fine. In my Bible, it's on page 1116. You can look at the table of contents, find the book of Isaiah, go there in Isaiah chapter 53. But as we, as we move forward to talk about this essential passage of Scripture, I want to talk about the value of leadership and man and women's need to be led. Now, you often see it in Scripture. You don't see the word leader too often in Scripture. But what you do see is this. And I'll put it up on the screen. Psalm chapter 23, verse 1. Maybe one of the most familiar passages in all the Bible. Where it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I love Psalm 23. I love Psalm 23. It's an awesome passage of Scripture. You should read it sometime. We won't take time to do that right now. Usually people call it the funeral psalm, okay? And I've preached it at many funerals. And it works great for a funeral. But listen, it works great for our lives. Because when you see the Lord is my shepherd, one of the things I want us to understand this morning as we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53 is when, when the Lord speaks of a shepherd, He's talking about a leader. He's talking about a loving leader. He's talking about a leader who serves, a leader who gives, a leader who sacrifices. And what we need to see today and as a result of our time in God's Word over the next couple of weeks, as we look in Isaiah 53, we're going to see this. The leader that we all need, the leader that you need in your life, is the Lord Jesus. Is the Lord Jesus. Now, I know we have leaders on teams, and they're important. We have leaders in homes, they're important. We have leaders in your business, in your churches, in in all environments. That's great. That's well and fine. But the leader, the leader that we need is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, know that, we are, that what we're seeing here is our leader is meant to be the Lord. Now, we're in the midst of an election right now, okay, as a country, right? Man, what a mess this is. And we got all kinds of people running for office. I think I have, there you go. You can pick your person, okay, and throw darts at them or something. I don't know. But America recognizes the value of leadership. We recognize it. But what I want to point us to as we look at the Lord Jesus today is that often man's picture of leadership is not what we see laid out in Scripture that God offers for us. We recognize the need for leadership. But where do we look? Where do we look to find Him? I want us to look to the Lord Jesus. Now, as I said, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53. Did you find it yet? Did you find it? Isaiah 53 is where we're going to be. And, and what I want to do today to kind of get us ready for this is I, I, want to, I need to do some introduction to the book of Isaiah because most of us really don't know Isaiah very well. Most of us don't know this book. And so I need to take a few minutes and I need to, to introduce you to the book of Isaiah. Okay? Now it's rather long. Okay, 66 books in the book of Isaiah, and you, if you read through, if you started at, verse, at chapter number 1 and read through the end, you, you'd likely be very, very confused along the way. I want to help us to understand a little bit this morning. I want to help us to understand it. But, but know this, that where we're headed, where we're headed is that the ultimate leader for us, the one we are desirous to follow, is the King, Lord Jesus. He is the King of glory, Psalm 27 says. He is the King of glory, and we are, we are desiring to have Him in our life. Psalm 24, 8 is up on the screen. It says, who is this King of glory? Who is this King of glory, this leader of glory, this one who reigns above us, who offers His leadership in our life? Who is this one that they cried out Hosanna to as He came in on Palm Sunday? And what they were saying was, save us, King. Save us, O King of the universe. Save us. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is our King. He is our King. You see, when we, when we, when we read the Old Testament, and we're, we are now in the Old Testament, okay, Isaiah is from the Old Testament, and, and we see a people, we're going to call them the Israelites, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews, we can call them a lot of different things, but, but they, are, they are God's people that God has, has, has picked for Himself to really bring the Gospel to the whole world. They were meant to be the Lord's people that He would reign over as King. And, and as we walk through the history of, of this nation of Israel, we see a desire for a king. And it closely parallels us. It goes all the way back into, and, and I'm going to reach back into your biblical, sort of maybe your Sunday school class, okay? It goes all the way back to these prophets and kings. We had the prophet Samuel. You heard of prophet Samuel? Prophet Samuel was this man of God that, that the Lord had there to, to really act as a leader among his people. And God was desiring to be the king. And the people of Israel, God's people, came to Samuel and said this. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We want a king. We want a king, they said. Samuel said, you got a king. 
His name is the Lord Jesus. His name is the Lord. He is your king. No, we want a king like all the people around us. And what this started is a 350-year search for a king. For a king. The people of God wanted a king. All the nations around them had a person they could see. A mighty leader. A strong man. He's on a white horse, got a sword in hand, and everybody's following behind him. And all the people of God said, that's what we want. We want what all the world has. We want our own king. And so the people demanded that Samuel give them a king. Now, I've I've got a slide here. Some of you might, might have been part of this. Who was here years ago for the Walk Through the Bible Conference on the Old Testament? One, two. Oh, there's a few of us. Okay. This is reaching back in your memory from a long time ago. Okay, I just want to put that up there to jog you a little bit. Years ago. Let me just tell you that this is the story of the Old Testament. The people wanted a king. Like all the world around them, they wanted a king. God wasn't enough. God wasn't enough. So they wanted a king. So they picked the first king. His name was Saul. You remember why they liked Saul? Because he was tall. That's why. He's a big, tall guy. They said, you be our king. You're tall. (laughs) Great process, right? Not like the American democratic system, I guess. I don't know. But they chose a king. It was a horrible king. A little rejected. So then we have this man, David. Maybe, Maybe he'll be a man of God. Samuel anoints David, and some of you know the story of David. He was, he was a man after God's heart. He did a lot of good things. Wrote much of your Old Testament. Wrote much of the book of Psalms. But in reality, he was not a fit king. Committed adultery. Murdered a man. Split. Because of him, God's people had a civil war, basically, and split the nation. We had Saul. We had David. We had David's son, Solomon. Very wise man. Okay? But God still did not reign as king, even under Solomon's reign. And after Solomon, as I said, the nation of Israel split into two. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. If you remember from our walk through the Bible event, the northern kingdom had 19 kings. 19 kings, and not one of them was any good. 19 kings, all bad. The southern kingdom had 20 kings. Eight of them were okay. The rest, garbage. So what we see here is, over and over and over, the people of God want a king. They want a leader. They want one to direct them. They want want a person who will will send them forth and and lead them into battle. And this this is the hard cry of us. Maybe it's the hard cry of you today. Who's your leader? Who leads you? I'm not talking about in your family or in your business or in your community or on your team. Because in reality, none of those things really matter if your leader isn't the Lord Jesus. Who leads your life? Is it you? Is it somebody else? What we're going to look at in Isaiah today is that the one who is qualified to lead us, the one who loves us enough to lovingly lead us, the one who is worthy of our followership is offering himself to us 
to serve us, to serve us by being his leader. By being, his, by being our leader, that I mean to say. Now, the book of Isaiah, um, I'll put this chart up on the screen and just stay with me for a minute, okay? Some of this stuff excites me and I know, just bear with me, okay? Humor me and just listen. The book of Isaiah is just fascinating. Fascinating. Sixty-six chapters in the book of Isaiah, okay? Thirty-nine in the first section, twenty-seven in the second. The first section, chapters 1 through 39, are all about the judgment of God on His people. On His people. His people rebelled against God, and so God brought wicked people into their life and overran them as a country. You'll see that in chapters 1 through 39. But then in chapter 40, something changes. Something changes. And now it's not so much God's judgment. It's not His people groaning from walk through the Bible. That's what they told us. The key word for chapters 1 through 39 was groan. You can write that in your worship notes. Groaning. At chapter 40 now, the key word becomes glory. Because in chapters 40 through 66, we now have, rather than God being the judge, we have God being the Savior who brings salvation to His people. 1 through 39, judgment of God. 40 through 66, salvation of God. The cool thing about this is, it's just, it's just fascinating how this works. How many books are in your Old Testament? Let's count them. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Stop me, please. Okay? There's 39 books in your Old Testament. In a lot of ways, what's the message of the Old Testament? In a lot of ways, it's God's judgment. If you wonder how many New Testament books there are, you take your 39, take the 3, take the 9, multiply them together. 3 times 9 is 27 New Testament books. Well, if you start counting in Isaiah 40 and go up to 66, what do you get to? 27. The book of Isaiah is so interesting. I don't know why this is, okay, maybe it's just the old math teacher in me that gets excited about this, but it's fascinating. And in the second half of Isaiah, in the second half of Isaiah, it clearly divides into three parts. Clearly divides into three parts. I've got them laid out there for you, just just for your interest's sake, okay? 40 through 48 is all about God saving His people from this invading nation. And then chapters 49 through 57 is all about God saving His people from sin. And then chapters 58 through the end is all about God establishing His kingdom forever. It divides clearly into three sections. And check this out. This is so cool. If you take the middle of that section, okay, if you start at chapter 40 and chapter 66 and start tick, 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 and find the middle of those chapters... Guess what chapter you land at? 53. In the middle of God's deliverance to His people is Isaiah 53. And if you go to the middle verse of Isaiah 53, it's just amazing. Let me read it to you. Isaiah, the middle verse of the middle chapter of the deliverance section of Isaiah is verse number 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace, and with his wounds we are healed. God has a message for us, folks. Listen. It is all through your Bible. I don't know whether God superintended the chapter, because you guys know that the chapter numbers are not inspired. Okay? That was added later. I don't know whether God superintended it or is just some kind of an amazing coincidence. I don't know. But here's what I know. The central message that God has for us is this. God loves us. God desires to lead you. Not because he wants to control you or, or have some way with you that harms you. God loves you. And he wants to lead you as a loving leader. And he has his, he has his very best for you. And just like the people of Israel, you see, they wanted a king. They wanted a king, but they didn't want the king that God provided. They wanted a king, but they had to see they needed a savior first. You want led today? You want the God of the universe to lead you? To get there, he must first save you. And that's the message of Isaiah 53. Now, it's long, okay? But we're going to read it. Because it is the Word of God. And it is much more important than anything I have to say. And not only are we going to read all the verses of Isaiah 53, we're even going to read the three that come before it, okay? Because remember I told you that those numbers, they aren't inspired, okay? The 53, that's, that is not inspired of God. The words are. The very words are inspired. But the numbers, 53, verse 1, 2, 3, they aren't inspired. What happened was the translators, they, they drew lines, said, this looks like the start of a new thought. This looks like the start of a new thought. This looks like the start of a new thought. Well, it is pretty widely held that they got this one wrong, okay? That Isaiah 53 should have started at verse number 13 of chapter 52. So let us read together Isaiah 52, verses 13 through the end of Isaiah 53. Just read along silently as I read aloud. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Let me just say, i got to take a comment. The servant here is the Messiah. The one who would come, anointed by God to do this work. He is the servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Or your translation may say, shall prosper. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now speaking of that servant, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form 
or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should despise Him. Desire Him, that is. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised. And we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne out our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered He was cut off from the land of the living, in other words, He died, stricken from the transgression of My people. And they made His grave with the wicked, so He was buried and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So he was sinless. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He's alive somehow. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. He's living. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So He will make many righteous before God. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the many, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out His soul to death and was numb with the transgressors. Yet He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53. An awesome passage of Scripture. Probably, one, probably the most quoted chapter in, of the Old Testament in the New. The New Testament references this chapter in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all quote Isaiah 53. In the book of Acts, Isaiah 53 is quoted. In the book of Romans, Isaiah 53 is quoted. In the book of 1 Peter, Isaiah 53 is quoted. Over and over and over, the New Testament authors come back to this chapter because it is so full of truth for us about our Lord, about our Savior, about our leader. The thing that strikes me about this leader that we're going to see as we walk through this together is our leader comes to serve. The leader comes to serve. See, that doesn't make any sense to us. In our minds, leaders are served. Get me some iced tea. Go do this task. Drive me here. Take a bullet for me. This is what leaders do, right? In our mind, leaders are served. Leaders are the important people. 
Leaders are the tall people who stand up and say, Oh, King Saul, you must be the leader. This leader comes to serve. To serve. Let's look at it together. All we're going to look at today is the three verses there at the end of chapter 52. Okay? The three verses there at the end of chapter 52. So let's, let's look at those together and, um, and understand what, what the Lord has for us. It is interesting, just another little fact here as, we're, as you're looking at them. Isaiah 53, counting the three verses prior, okay? It neatly breaks down into five sets of three verses. Five sets of three verses. And every single one of them start with a, one commentator says, I like the way he says it, with a strong he. Every single one of them starts with a strong he. You don't always see it in the English, but they all start with this strong statement about this Messiah leader. So what we're going to look at today is the first of these, this set of three verses, and we're going to see what, what it is that we need to know about this servant, this Messiah, this one sent by God to serve. It's in verse number 13. Look what it says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The first thing I want us to see here is that Jesus, the servant, the great servant, the one who said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I have not come to be served. I have come to serve and give my life as a ransom. He will succeed. This servant the one that is coming, this king that is finally here, will succeed. Remember, as we talked all the way back from the prophet Samuel all the way forward, every single king failed. Every one of them failed. And that is a reality of all humans. Listen to this. Every single man will fail you. Every single woman will fail you. Your mom, your dad failed you. Get over it. That's the way that men and women are. It just happens. Get over it and live your life. Everyone will fail you except for the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who will succeed. And that's what this passage is telling us. Notice it says, Behold, my servant shall act... Now ESV says, wisely. But many of your translations say, He will prosper. Now let's talk about what that means. Now we know that the Old Testament speaks a lot about wisdom. Okay, Proverbs speaks a lot about wisdom. So does the Psalms. I mean, Ecclesiastes, you see about this wisdom over and over and over. But what we see in the Old Testament is this. According to God, when God looks at life, He says, you want to be prosperous? You want to be successful? Live out God's wisdom. You want to be successful? Live out God's wisdom. And God doesn't mean measly monetary success. That's for the world. He's talking about a success that brings you joy and peace. He's talking about a success that honors God. But often what the Bible says is that's just called wisdom. So when the ESV says that he will act wisely, what, what, we're, what we see here is this servant will be successful. Now what is it that he will do? Well, the passage tells us, look what it says. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Literally, this is what it says. He shall be high, high, and greatly high. That's literally what it says. High, high, and greatly high. This one who comes to serve, he's called a servant. This is the word for a slave. 
When it says, behold my servant, it's behold my slave. This is one that comes totally submissive to somebody else's will. Jesus the Messiah is coming totally submissive. He has come totally submissive to the will of the Father. You want to know if God loves you? Look at His Son that He sent to die for us. And He will come and be a slave. He will take on the role of the servant. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 2. We should look to Jesus, who though being in the very nature of God, considered equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but made Himself a servant. This is Jesus. Coming to earth as a slave taking on flesh, becoming a man. But the promise here is that he will be prosperous and he shall be high and high and very high. Now there's a lot of discussion about what this means. There's a lot of discussion about what do, what do these three different highnesses mean? What does it mean? Now a lot of people take a good guess and, and I think maybe this might be it. You think about this. The Lord Jesus came as servant. He was lifted high. Lifted high on a cross. He came in, we celebrated today. He came into Jerusalem. And the people thought, finally, we have a king. Because after all, Jesus had been teaching, Jesus had been doing miracles. Just prior to this day that we celebrate, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. The, pe- the word is around. And the people of Israel think, ha ha, we got him. We have a king. Finally we have a king. And this king will be victorious. He'll get on a white horse and he'll conquer the Romans. Yes! And so Jesus came to Jerusalem that day. And they shouted out, Hosanna, save us. And they didn't mean it the way that I hope you mean it today. They meant, be our victorious leader, conquer the Romans. Little did they know that just a few short days later, they would be crying out themselves to the Roman soldiers, crucify Him, crucify Him, and they nailed Him to a cross And they raised that cross up high. And there, the servant of God, the slave of God, hung high for all to see. Hung there, suffering for something. For someone. We call it Good Friday. What's so good about it? The servant lifted high, dying a wicked death. Not just death, but a death on a cross. That's high. But it says he will be prosperous. He'll be lifted high, and then he'll be lifted high again. What happened? They put Jesus in the ground is what happened. And three days later, Out he came alive. And that's what we now kind of call Easter. I like calling it Resurrection Sunday. Because that's when Jesus was high, and now he's high. 
He is now conquered death. And then it says, highly exalted. Listen, that hasn't even happened yet. Jesus is high. And He's higher again. He's been been raised from the dead. But there is coming a time in the future, listen, there is coming a time, and I believe this Isaiah passage is talking about this, where the Lord Jesus will be, if the word is coronated, He will be identified as the King of all of creation. I know He's my King today, and I hope He's your King as well. But there is coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. I believe that's what Isaiah has seen. That Jesus would be high on a cross. Jesus would be raised up high from the dead and one day He will reign as King over all. I look forward to that day. Look forward to that. He will succeed. But verse 14 tells us more. Let's read it. As many were astonished at you, speaking to the servant, to the slave, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What is going on here? What has happened to this one who will be lifted high? What the passage is saying here is, he's going to do something and you will be astonished by it. The word astonished here means paralyzed. It means moved so deeply that you can't even respond. Some say it's to be dumbfounded. Have you ever had something happen to where you can't even speak? I was in a car accident one time. Actually, I call it my almost a car accident. There was no collision, okay? There was, there was there, nothing hit anything else, but it was just like a car accident. For, the, for those of you who don't know the story, and for the motorcycle riders, I'm sorry, but I made that cardinal mistake. I pulled out in front of a motorcycle. I didn't see it. Do you forgive me? Okay. I pulled out in front of a motorcycle, and this person goes like this, and they go tumbling on their bike into the grass beside of me. I jumped out of my car. I'm looking around. I'm absolutely dumbfounded. I remember being in shock. Have you had this experience? And I couldn't couldn't put a thought together. I I, I couldn't express anything. This woman who was on the back of the motorcycle is laying on the ground. They're afraid she's going to die. I run over to her. I kneel down. I don't remember any of this. I'm told by somebody who was there that I knelt down on the ground. I said, I'm a pastor. Let me pray for you. And I don't remember any of that. I don't remember calling anybody. I don't remember doing anything. But later I looked at my phone. At, you know, they had a recent call button. Somewhere in those five, ten minutes, I called my father. Who knows why? And I called 911. I don't remember any of it. I remember just sort of waking up in a way and I'm standing next to my Jeep trying to call my wife. I was dumbfounded. I saw something that took away my words. It paralyzed me in many ways. It astonished me. Here's the point. Jesus, the servant, He will succeed, but He will also, listen, He will also 
offend. That's what this is saying. The people around are going to see him. They see his appearance. This is the word that speaks of his face. They see his appearance. It is marred beyond human semblance. Jesus' face was so abused by the Roman soldiers as they beat him before they crucified him that you couldn't even tell he was a human. He is marred beyond human semblance. He looked like his face had been destroyed. It was a bloody mess from them beating on him. That's his appearance. His form speaks of his body. It is beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, you couldn't even tell that he was a human as well. His face was beyond the face of a human. His body was beyond the body of a human. And those who saw it, many of them, they weren't drawn to Him. This word astonished doesn't mean drawn to. It means repelled. It means you see it and you want nothing to do with it, is what it means. What is it that drives people away from the crucified Christ? What is it that makes us say, I don't want to look at that. You're feeling it now. As I speak of him being beat, as I speak of him being whipped, as I speak of him pulling his beard out of his face, you don't want to hear it. And I don't want to say it. What is it? I think at some level, it is just the physical pain of the whole process. I think at some level, it's the physical suffering. But I think in reality, the real issue is this. Jesus offends because He demonstrates how sinful we are. People are astonished. People are offended offended by a crucified Christ. Because what it demonstrates is that I deserve worse. I deserve the beating. I deserve the death. And I don't like to hear that. You know why I don't like to hear that? Because I don't want to admit that I am that sinful. Oh, I do some bad stuff. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, there's worse people than me. I mean, how about the axe murderers, right? And they get a bad rap over and over and over. But the reality is this. The reality is, Jesus was treated so harshly because our sin is so Blatant. People ask, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Who's responsible? I mean, for years, the German theologians tried to blame the Jews. They said it was the Jews. It was those wicked Jews. Let's throw them into the gas chambers. It was those wicked Jews, the Christ killers. They were wrong. Some have tried to blame the Romans. It was the Romans. They did it. They were, they were sure that the Jews kind of, you know, they put together this little trial, but the Romans were responsible. Some would say, it was me. I did it. 
in a lot of ways, there's some truth there. But we need to hear the full truth. Do you know who it is that's responsible for the death of the servant of God? It's not Satan. It's not really you. It's not the Romans. It's not the Jews. It is God. And all of His love and all of His justice. He loved us so much. So much. That He brought that judgment on to His servant. Jesus was marred beyond human semblance. His form, you couldn't even tell, was a child of man. And the reason it was so wicked is because the great God of the universe loved us so much and desired to glorify Himself so much that He rained down that judgment on His Son. Now that is a pretty significant statement. You need to see it in the Bible. Okay? So go with me. Go with me to Romans chapter 3. A guy like that says, if somebody says something like that, you've got to see it in the Bible. My words aren't enough. Romans chapter 3. You might want to mark this because you're not going to fully grasp it right now. You might want to think about it all this week. Romans 3. We'll start reading at verse number 23. It says, verse 23 of chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified, that means to be declared righteous, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So His death. Whom? Next verse. Important. Listen. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now that's a word you don't use. Okay? And I don't blame you. I have no reason to ever use the word propitiation in the regular course of my life, and neither do you. So we better know what it means. Propitiation means this. It is the one that receives the punishment. It is the, it is the recipient of the punishment. And it says here that Christ, that God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, this one Christ to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at this present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what this means. God didn't just forget about your sin. God didn't just look at your sin and say, nah, I'll turn my brain off and not think about that anymore. That's not what God did. God didn't just imagine that you never sinned. God just didn't say, I'm going to treat you like it never happened. That's not what God did. God took all of our sin and poured it on His Son. All of it. And poured it on His servant. It's great truth. But we don't like to hear that. A lot of people don't like to hear that. Because it means that that's what I deserved. Okay, to finish up this passage, verse number 15. 
Let's, let's get through this quickly here. 15 says this. So shall he, this servant, sprinkle many nations. Mm, sprinkle here. What does that mean? Sprinkle is a, is a, it's a Levitical word. You find it in the book of Leviticus. It's a word that was used for the priest coming to in the temple and sprinkling blood from a sacrifice and purifying sinners. That's what this word means. It's called a technical word. That means, what that means is it has a very, it has a very certain meaning. And it means that one is purified by this process. So look at it now. He, being the servant, shall sprinkle, shall purify many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. So the kings who think they're great will be dumbfounded now because of this offer of forgiveness, because of this redemption, because of this sprinkling, because of this cleansing, because of this purification. Why? Because that which has not been told them they now see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So what we're seeing here is, Jesus the servant, He will redeem people. This great act redeems people who get it, who hear it, who understand it. God does a work in lives. It's got to be a miracle. Hear this. It's got to be a miracle. If God's Spirit right now is prodding your heart and He's saying, this is truth. You need sprinkled. You need cleansed. You need the servant to be your servant. You need to be served. God isn't asking you to serve Him. He's not saying, please come serve me. Earn my love. Earn my care. Earn my forgiveness. That's not what God does. That's every other religion but the one true faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other religion, you serve God. Christianity, true biblical Christianity, you are served by God. He serves us by dying for us. Have you received? We're talking about Easter. We're talking about Good Friday. We're talking about Lord's, the Lord. Have you been served by the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your act of love. You succeed. You offend many. And you redeem some. God, I pray that right now in people's hearts, they'll either be worshiping you because one day they did put their trust in you and today they're redeemed in you. Or right now, Lord, Somebody's calling out to you from their heart that you might serve them and save them. You did not come to be served. You came to serve and to give your life as a ransom. Thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus, the servant of God. Today, we praise you as Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.